Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. This is the final episode of a four-part series about blockchain, crypto, tokenization, and the impact that these innovations are having on commercial real estate and real estate investing. In this episode, we discuss some of the practical advantages of tokenization, along with the value of triple net investments with Michael Flight principal and CEO of Liberty Real Estate Fund, the world's first net lease security token fund. Michael is a real estate entrepreneur with decades of experience in retail real estate. He was a founding principal of Concordia Realty Corporation and has partnered with some of the world's most well-known banks, insurance companies, hedge funds, and institutional investors since starting his commercial real estate career in 1985. Michael is also a co-founder of the Blockchain Real Estate Summit and is a well-known speaker who has shared his expertise at conferences and events all over the world. In our conversation, Michael describes why single-tenant triple net leases make great investments and the investor benefits of a token real estate fund. He also shares his insights about building a portfolio that can withstand changes as online shopping expands. Some of the key insights are the breakdown of triple net lease properties and the advantages they provide, how retail portfolios can evolve with the decline of malls and other storefronts, the benefits of blockchain for real estate investors, how to invest in tokenized real estate, and common barriers to entry in the blockchain space. So if you're interested in learning more about triple net properties or token investment funds, this episode is packed with useful information. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to see you again, Adapia. Pleasure to meet you, Daniel. It's always great to it's always great to see you again and it's really so exciting for you to to be on the podcast today. We've been looking forward to to this episode to round out our four-part series on crypto, blockchain and real estate tokenization. And so to to that end, would love for you to kind of talk a, a little bit about your background in in real estate and how that has led you into the the world of real estate tokenization. Well, I've uh, been in real estate for around 35 years now, and we've been in business as a company since 1990. So, you know, right around 31 years. And I, you know, have specialized in shopping centers retail, real estate, malls, and especially triple net properties. And uh, triple net, it means that the tenant is paying most of the expenses. So the nets are taxes, insurance, and maintenance. And you can remember that by the acronym TIM, taxes, insurance, and maintenance. And so the tenant pays all of that stuff. So with a typical shopping center, 
you've got a group of tenants and what you do is you divide up all the expenses and you bill them back to the tenants pro rata. And with a single tenant triple net lease, most of the time the tenant pays for all those and does everything directly. So all you do is get a uh, check. So that's why I named my podcast Nothing But Net because you get nothing but net income. How big is that segment in triple, like triple net lease? Like, can, can you give us a sense of how big that, that part of the real estate asset class is, how much money flows into it and maybe what kind of returns investors are, are getting? It, you put me on the spot there. <laughs> I, I don't know. I can tell you that there it, for institutional real estate, there used to be four large food groups and they were office, retail, industrial and multifamily residential. And so in the retail space, you have single tenant triple net leases, but also in office and industrial, you have single tenant triple net leases. So probably the hottest area right now in terms of single tenant triple net leases are, you know, logistics warehouses because you get sometimes like Amazon or FedEx or any one of these things that are in really high demand. So I've seen some insane cap rates for, for Amazon stuff. And as a matter of fact, my son works for Nuveen and they bought this super huge industrial portfolio from Blackstone. I think they, it was like a billion and a half, you know, for the portfolio. And it was a five cap. And I, you know, mentioned to him that it looks like they overpaid for it. And that was in December, 2019. And then comes the pandemic. It's like, that was like the smartest move anybody ever made, you know, because those are now like three cap deals. Wow. Wow. And so is that, is that almost, and I know it's not, but I'm going to say it this way, the way you've described it, it's, it, it kind of sounds like this is almost akin to a bond. Like it's a credit tenant. Like they're the kind of tenant that like always pays on time. Like they're never going to miss a payment kind of a tenant. Would, would that be like a semi-fair representation of like this asset class versus like, you know, we do a lot of class B multifamily with a lot of value add, like the, the cash flow changes because there's, there's a mixed uh, business plan going on. So like relative to that, this sounds just like pretty straight down the fairway. Yeah, you just read my mind because I normally describe them to people as bonds wrapped in real estate. So you get a long-term lease, which is exactly like a bond commitment. They commit to paying you X amount of dollars. Usually there's some escalations in the rent and you just collect it. But the great thing is, is that you have the real estate. So you get the depreciation, which you don't get in the bond and you get the benefit of appreciation. So we like retail single tenant net leases and they're really well-located properties. So they're main and main. So they're like on a, a main corner and those aren't really going to depreciate unless the entire neighborhood goes or you know something happens to the city or a flood happens. But the other thing is a friend of mine who was one of the original guys in the, the triple net industry kind of really came into existence in the, the 1980s after they changed the tax laws. And so he likes to describe them as a bond tied to a rock. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, how did they perform during COVID? I mean, we, we had a guest on that also talked about, you know, kind of dismissing this like myth of 
all retail is dead and all like shopping is dead. So I'm, and so I'm sure that you also have some, some insights into that. And I would imagine that it's going to be really relative to like who the, who the tenant is and what you just said, main and main. So location. So like, what are some of those insights in terms of how it performed during COVID and why? Well, I can tell you as an industry average, the highest occupancy you know, pretty much for years. And I think we've got numbers going back 20, 30 years. Single tenant triple net leases have averaged anywhere from nine and a half, 97 and a half to 98 and a half percent occupied. So these things are, are always well occupied. And during COVID, you know, we have shopping centers, we have traditional shopping centers, and we have the triple net lease properties. And we specifically decided to create our portfolio that was internet resistance because right around, you know, 2016, 2017, and really building up 2018, we could see that malls really, you know, were going to be impacted, especially, you know, C and B malls that weren't like the huge fortress malls, but even now the the huge fortress malls have taken a big hit. And we saw that certain shopping centers, uh, a lot of that stuff was going to move online. So what we did was we put together a portfolio that was medical service, automotive service. We really like the cell phone, mobile phones, because you get AT&T and Verizon as your credit. But, you know, people need to go and get their phone in person, even though you can buy it online. It's like most people want to make sure that it's set up correctly and things like that. So those type of businesses are going to be around. And then we Also, we didn't call them essential businesses, but now certain states have started calling grocery stores, drug stores, dollar stores, and those type of things as essential businesses. We always referred to them as necessity business or, you know, convenience type of businesses. Right. You know, in the middle of the pandemic on some of our shopping centers, we had up to 50% of the tenants closed and, you know, they, they couldn't pay rent and that there was a lot of scrambling there. And then our past history, we've actually demalled three malls. So we've done, you know, large malls where we've, you know, emptied them out, tore them down, either built a strip center or built, you know, some sort of mixed use or tore them down and and handed them over to a developer to build something else. Oh, that's so interesting. I was going to ask you about some of those B and C kind of strip malls, which I know is different than what you invest in the opportunity that they present as land assets or to be reused for other types of businesses. Or I always kind of thought like pop-up health, you know, considering what's going on with pandemic and all that. But I'm always curious about it. It's an asset, no matter how you look at it, like whether you have to tear it down or repurpose it for, for something else. So I was curious if you had any insights into like what else is going on with, with the repurposing of, of malls or D D oh, I could go for hours on that. <laughs> <laughs> done, done that for the last 30 years. One of the things that most people don't think about is a lot of these tenants have long-term leases. So in order to do a repurposing, you need to get control of the leases. So if the store is vacant, you have control of that. But the other tenants in the shopping center also have use restrictions on what sometimes what you can do with the shopping center. So like some of these big malls, the landlord might actually not even own the anchor tenants. The department stores might actually own their own store. And then there's a thing called a reciprocal easement agreement between the two. 
but it also restricts whether you can put in like a medical use. So for example, I have uh, a shopping center and we've got a, a great location. We've had a ton of interest from, you know, medical users, and it would be a perfect fit there because it would round out our tenant mix, but we've got use restrictions from two anchor tenants. And it's not like they, and they restrict a medical because people that are going to medical just kind of park in the parking lot and then sit there and then leave. And it's the same thing. A lot of retailers don't like fitness places because, you know, people go work out and a lot of times they just park there for an hour to two hours and then they leave and they don't necessarily go, you know, shopping for clothes or anything like that after they're all sweaty. So that's some of the things. It's a great idea. It's sometimes very difficult to, you know, put together the execution because of these long-term lease commitments and, you know, what has been promised to the tenants. Oh, that's so interesting. You're right. We could talk about that for hours, but... (laughs) But. Well, and there's the other thing is if there's existing debt on the property, you have to go and talk to your lender and say, hey, I know you lent on this collateral and there's a building here, but we're going to knock it down and put something else there. So they get a little bit concerned when you start knocking down the collateral without showing them some sort of lease or some sort of you know other thing at the other end of the thing so that they can get comfortable with that. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot more, that's a lot more complex than, than, than I thought this whole thing was, but it's really interesting. I think gives you a lot more to do than just, you know, collect that, that bond, that bond interest, so to speak. But I guess as investors, that's what, that's what we want. And you can have all the fun doing the structuring and, and. (laughs) Well, that's why I really like the single tenant that lease properties, because you don't have to go through all the brain damage to, I mean, the, the returns are great. And I love the creativity about it, but I really, really, really just like um, buying something, set it and forget it. It's like, it's there, boom, I know what it is. And we, you can also get creative in the single tenant, not lease properties. Like you can get higher cap rates if there's you know a shorter lease term. So we'll take a risk on something that might have a three or four year lease term on it. If we know, you know, number one, the tenant, or if we know of a replacement tenant that would go in there, and if we know that the location is a great location, you know, in in certain situations, like we were looking at a deal in Austin, and, you know, my partner said, I would buy the thing and hope that the tenant left because, you know, we can add like, you know, five to 10 bucks a square foot onto the rent and put another tenant in there. So let me let me jump in for a second, just kind of ask the, the logical follow-up, right? These these triple net deals, you've removed a lot of variables, and that's why you know you, you kind of get comfortable with them from a you know an underwriting, a conservative underwriting perspective. But like what do you view as as the risk? Is it just the the risk of potentially having to, to re-tenant if, if a lease term rolls out? I imagine with credit tenants of the size you're talking about, they're pretty sticky, you know, in terms of likely to renew, but be interested to hear a bit more about just what what you think someone investing in these assets should think about from a risk perspective? The biggest risk is, is that you're either 100% occupied or 100% vacant. So you need to have, if it's not you, you know, some sort of relationship with a leasing broker or some sort of, you know, build up, you know, some relationship with somebody that, you know, knows who potential replacement tenants are. The next risk is, and I've coached a few novice investors through this and you know, some were really sweating. Most of these national tenants, even though they want to stay there, 
they'll automatically, as a matter of business practice now, call you up. If they've got an option, they'll call you up before exercising the option. And they'll say, we're going to renew here for five years, but I need you to reduce my rent by, you know, one to three dollars a square foot. And I need you to do this, this and that. And so depending on, you know, how good the store is and how much you know about that tenant, you know, whether you want to call their bluff or not. So for example, we just had a Dollar Tree call us up earlier in the year, they were up for a renewal and they said, well, we're deciding whether we're going to exercise the option and it's a five-year option. So we'll give you a a 10-year extension, but we want you to reduce the rent for two years. And I know that because we had already relocated them to this thing. And I know that they're like, it's just a gangbuster store. So I said, I'll give you the 10 years of lease, but you know, you can, if you really want to renegotiate the lease, you could pay more rent. So they came back and just, you know, all of a sudden exercised their option because the, the lease term, you know, wasn't as big as the fact that I didn't want to, you know, some people really you know, wanted to, would want to protect their income and take a hit to the rent, but it's like, I'll, I'll take a five-year lease. That's fine. And, you know, I know that they're doing well. And then, you know, that, that, so that's the situation where you just need to know a, a little bit. It's a little bit different. I, you know, explain to people that do multifamily that everybody's kind of lived in a house or an apartment. So they kind of know how it operates. And this is just a, a little bit different. But, you know, once you get the hang of it and once you're comfortable with it, and I would also recommend that if somebody is interested in doing uh, single tenant triple net, they should specialize in something so that they understand the business. So like, for example, if you want to do fast food restaurants, you should know a little bit about, you know, the fast food restaurant business, and then you can know whether it's a good location or a bad location. For example, Starbucks wants to be on the going to work side of the street or that they used to. That's how traffic patterns used to. And it was the same thing with Dunkin Donuts. So, you know, if you're going to do it, just know a little bit about the business because you're actually not only investing in the real estate and making sure the real estate is a good location, but you're also kind of investing in the business. So I imagine that you're reserving some amount of capital to cover carrying costs for some period of time if a tenant would leave. What does that typically look like? Like, What's your expectation if you had to go out and find a new tenant? What does that timeline look like? We typically, you know, book anywhere from six months to a year. And most of the time we can release it within six months. Stuff doesn't, we used to be able to, like when I started out in the 1980s, I could fly out to like some remote location, bring the lease out and have the tenant sign it on the trunk of the car and then go back and I'd be done. And stuff just doesn't, you know, go that fast anymore. There's legal departments, there's real estate departments, and, you know, there's, there's stuff in between it. So we had a tenant that just was expiring and it went all the way down to the wire. They expired on October 31st. And you know, we got the lease signed for the, just, you know, last week in, you know, fully executed. So sometimes it just takes a long time because these, they're, they're really overworked other times. So I would say, especially with a, a new tenant, you're also going to have to, you know, budget in some tenant improvement allowance to, you know, for the tenant to build out the space, because the secret to a lot of these things is the tenant's are actually expanding and doing all their expansion on landlord dollars. So a lot of times there's programmatic expansion with developers. 
and they'll do a, what's called a build a suit with the developer. And so they'll just say, you build us this and we'll just, you know, basically pay in rent and, and pay back for the building. And then those merchant developers will then sell them to, you know, investors like us. And so that's, you know, pretty much you've got to reserve for uh, tenant improvement and releasing. And you've also got to reserve for, you know, some amount of vacancy. And I, I forgot, and I am, I am a real estate broker. You have to, you know, reserve for commissions because most of these tenants have a tenant broker that you're going to have to pay. And you're going to want to, if they do have a tenant broker, you're going to want to work with the tenant broker because it just makes your life a lot easier. If you try to go around their tenant broker, more than likely it's going to kill your deal. So you've been doing this for a long time, like you said, since, since the eighties and you're, you're set in it. Like you said, set it and forget it. I want to clip my coupon. What, what propelled you to take all of this and go into the blockchain space, which is like the wildest, the craziest, like the, you know, it's, it's the wild west, as they say, like, how did you, how did you make that decision to go into there? Cause I'd really love to talk about how you've taken all of this and turned it into a blockchain based fund. Well, I have had the good fortune to hang around with a lot of insanely intelligent people. Unfortunately, I was not as intelligent as them. So while they were telling me about Bitcoin in 2014, I couldn't really understand what was going on. And I just kind of thought it was a scam. Plus the fact that I think, you know, especially when I was in my 40s, I was really sad. It's like, you know, real estate is this. I know this, blah, 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 blah. And I don't know this other stuff. So, you know, I, I was just like doing this, you know, when they were talking about it. But I kept hearing enough people talk about blockchain and talk about Bitcoin and talk about this stuff that I, right around 2015, 2016, I started telling my kids, I'm like, I don't know what this is, but you guys got to figure it out because everybody that I know that's really, really smart and really, really sharp is doing it. Then the other thing that really kind of sucked me in a lot was I got involved with a startup country in the middle of Europe called Liberland. And it's six years old now. And Liberland is entirely being built on the blockchain. And so a lot of Bitcoin billionaire and blockchain billionaires and you know all kinds of people that were really early adopters in the blockchain space, I got to meet these guys. And so I'm like, this is really cool stuff. And so right around 2017, when the ICO craze happened and ICO is initial coin offering, I saw people that you know, all they did was it was like two guys put up a website, put up a really wrote a really bad white paper that, you know, had the word uh, awesome in it like 50 times. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they and, and they had four Airbnbs in the middle of you know Bucharest, Romania. And these guys raised like seven hundred fifty, eight hundred thousand dollars. And I'm like, if these guys have like no real estate experience, and they, they yeah. absolutely had a you know, crummy little, you know, white paper. It's like, I want to do this, but I want to like create a real estate stable coin. And so I already had in my head, the most stable real estate you can get is triple net leases, which are bonds wrapped in real estate. So if you took that real estate instead of, and you took the coin, instead of tying it to some algorithm, which really, you know, you have to be a computer genius to actually, you know, trust you, you can trust Bitcoin, but uh, unless you're a computer genius, unless you're a mathematician, unless you're a cryptographer, uh, and unless you know how all this stuff works, 
you're really just have faith that Bitcoin is going to work. So I'm not slamming Bitcoin. I'm just telling you. And so I wanted to say, I have real faith in number one, that these tenants are going to pay their rent over the next 20 years. And I have real faith in real estate. So why not tie that to a coin and make a real estate stable coin? So that's kind of, you know, was also in the back of my mind when we were putting together the portfolio. How interesting, a real estate stable coin. There's a lot of talk about stable coins right now with, with the regulatory agencies and what have you. So it's really interesting. I haven't heard that before, real estate stable coin. So have you created essentially a pool of assets that are on blockchain and that are tokenized and people can trade the tokens like they could trade a security or how does it work? Okay. Um, our properties are not tokenized. So okay. there's a, there, there's a difference. In, and that's why I just want to clarify that because a lot of people talk about tokenizing real estate and they talk about, oh, you know, I'm going to tokenize these houses, you know? And so you uh, or Daniel or me could each tokenize our house and each one of those houses would be what's called an NFT or a non-fungible token yeah. because each house would be unique. What we did was we tokenized the actual fund of properties. So the fund has the properties in it and the actual fund is tokenized. And so that becomes a security. So right. what we are doing is issuing a security token. So again, the NFTs are you know, artwork, our houses, you can make a car in NFT, you can make, you know, crazy things, NFTs, what we are doing, and what I'm assuming, you know, at some point, you guys are going to be doing is, you know, once you do a fund, you're going to tokenize the fund and issue the fund shares to the blockchain. So those become tradable shares. So those are then security tokens. Got it. So then as security, I'm, I'm thinking through because you're right. A lot of it has been, I'm going to tokenize the actual underlying asset and then people can trade liquidity into and out of it. And it's, it's, it's very different than how we currently are operating, you know, our syndications. And, and so this is, this is, I'm going to say it this way. It's not just, but it's just a fund that happens to be on blockchain. And so it, it, it allows you to trade it using the new, you know, the new rails, like the new, the, the new financial system that's basically, you know, being built on top of the current one. Exactly. So, and there's a lot of people that talk about taking, you know, one property and tokenizing it and then selling shares. And as soon as they do that, they've created a security. So <laughs> it then becomes a fund. So there's a lot of people out there that have illegal tokenized things. And so there's, there was one just over in Missouri, like late last year, and they took a six unit building and they tokenized it and they sold shares of it. And that's clearly an illegal you know, security because they didn't do a securities offering. So again, you could sell your house to me and that wouldn't be a security. It would be an, an NFT. But as soon as you decide to split your house up into like 10 shares and then you know, sell it out to somebody, but there's, well, we, we won't get into it because it's going <laughs> to bring us down a rabbit hole. So you're, you're correct. It's not just simply a fund. And I, I, I like to say that. I'm like, if you are used to investing in private real estate syndications, or you're used to investing in a, a venture capital fund, or you're used to investing in private equity, it's exactly the same. 
So it's exactly the same procedure. There's a PPM, you have to do the registration with the SEC. Our fund happens to be a 506C offering, but you could do a Regulation A, you could do a Regulation C, which is a regulation crowdfunding, as you well know, because you're the queen of crowdfunding. <laughs> and you could do a, a 506B or you know any number of you know registered things, as long as you complied with the, the regulations under which you are offering it. The really great part is, is that instead of you, you have the exact same fund and instead of paper shares, your tokens you know, are your shares. And so those become tradable and they also give you other, you know, type of investment options as an investor. I was going to see if Dan wanted to jump in with his legal mind and questions and, and, and all that. Dan, did you have any, did you have any questions? <laughs> Cause I could keep Yeah. Going. Yeah. I and mean, listen, there, I think there are a ton of questions generally, and, and that's why, you know, you're working to kind of develop this, this space, right? Because I, I think it's pretty clear. And I think we'll probably talk about some of the investor benefits to doing this, that, you know, there are advantages to real estate investors having, I won't say on-demand liquidity, but you know, an increased level of, of liquidity that makes all the sense in the world. The challenge, of course, is how do you get to that point where you know reputable real estate owners and operators are you know using these types of mechanisms as they put together their the real estate deals, right? And what I think is particularly interesting about what you're doing is you're picking an asset class and a deal type, these single tenant triple net leases that have a different risk profile and you're creating some degree of stability. And then, you know, you're introducing this new feature that adds a bit more value. And so I think if more groups like you start to, you know, adopt these types of, of practices, you know, we could be sitting here in five, 10, 15 years where it's a very common thing for real estate investors to be able to effectively trade a- after the fact. And so I don't have a specific question other than to say, I think it's really interesting what you're, what you're doing. There are of course risks that come with it. And maybe that's what, what leads to a, to a question, right? It's just how do, how do we get there? You know, how do we think about the secondary market? I know we had a uh, Mosin on uh, a, a few weeks ago and, and we talked a bit about, you know, what he was working on, which was really the full spectrum of starting with a real estate asset and tokenizing it, and then also managing a secondary market to facilitate trades. And, you know, my concern with that is just, you're involved in all these different processes, like you're taking on a lot of liability in a space that historically has been, as Adapia said, the wild west, right? It's an insider trading type of world, right? And there's no penalty for insider trading in, in real estate, right? It's, it's expected. And so, you know, in your case, you know, you're focusing on, you know, one specific part of that spectrum. So maybe you could just chat a little bit more about why that makes sense. Sure. Well, I, I do want to back up. So you are absolutely 100% correct that until more assets get onto the blockchain and until investors get used to doing this type of uh, deal and until sponsors learn how to, there's not going to be a tremendous amount of liquidity in it. So with that in mind, we, in September, put together the Blockchain Real Estate Summit in Austin, Texas. And what we tried to set up was starting with the legal and accounting and then going to issuers and then all the way through to liquidity providers like exchanges like ATS. We wanted to give developers and investors a full spectrum of how does this, how do you do one of these, you know, and this is, you know, start to finish. And it, it wasn't all inclusive, but what we tried to do is say, 
this is what you can do. This is how you begin to do it. This is how you begin to start thinking about it. And then the next thing that I tell everybody, I speak of, you know, at a lot of real estate, you know, capital raising groups and real estate, you know, investment groups. And so what I've started just telling everybody that's a real estate sponsor and that's out there syndicating, I said, what you should do is on your next syndication, on your next, you know, sponsor, on your next next deal, have somebody that's familiar with digital assets and familiar with security tokens write in that you have the option, but not the obligation that you can issue onto a blockchain as a tradable asset at some time in the future. That way they don't have to go back and backdate all their stuff and go back to all their investors and say, oh, by the way, we're doing this. It's already in there. And so then when their investors come to them and say, hey, I think we should do this, you can say, hey, we've already got that written in there. So that's a great idea. And it's a proven concept. There's a secondary market and there's a lot of things going on out there and we're ready to do this. So that's what I say to everybody because everybody says, how do I start? I'm like, well, there's a lot to learn about the space. So the easiest way for you to start is just by changing your offering documents. And if you're an investor looking to invest in somebody's deal, you should just ask them, have you heard about a security token? And would you consider doing that? Because you know I'm interested in learning about it too. So I see a chicken egg problem, so to speak, right? Which is, right. you know, you have the incentive to raise capital in this way is much larger for a group that is otherwise not able to raise capital easily, right? Either they're newer, they don't have the right relationships, what have you. But for someone like yourself, who's been doing this for 30 years, you could go out and raise capital for any deal that you want to, and you don't need to add the extra you know, benefit of kind of this tokenization blockchain, right? And so what is it that makes you guys want to go down this, this path, even though in practice, you probably don't have to? See, there's two things that, that kind of drive me. Number one, right around 1984, 1985, my mother or my father invested in a, a hotel syndication deal. My father then died in 1986. And so my mother was stuck in that syndication deal that didn't pay her anything. These guys just feed the thing to death. And then in 2020, during the pandemic, the hotel was finally foreclosed on. She had all kinds of phantom income that she had to deal with, you know, as an elderly woman. And I had to like, you know, her whole thing resolved for her. So with this, it solves a problem for investors. But I believe it, you know, and, and I, I understand that, but I don't think that what, what you said, I think is correct because I saw it a little bit in the crowdfunding space that sponsors that couldn't raise capital then went in to do crowdfunding because they thought that crowdfunding was going to be this you know, be all to end all, you know, for their capital problems. But what I absolutely tell a lot of people, because I, I do get contacted by a lot of people and they're like, I have two rental houses in Memphis and I want to get into real estate tokenization. And I just say, I don't want to be rude or anything like that, but I think you should go out and get a track record with actually investing in real estate. And then you're ready to go and do this type of thing. But I, I do think that there's an attraction for sponsors, especially experienced sponsors, because number one, you can have you can service a lot more investors with a lot less back office with this, because what these smart contracts, which are what kind of attaches 
the certificate or your share to the blockchain. Those smart contracts automate a lot of things. So it makes fund administration a lot easier. It makes distributions a lot easier. The really cool thing, and this is not just our fund, but we're issuing through a company called Securitize out of San Francisco. So Securit, and we don't do any technology. So I just want to be completely clear. I am a real estate guy. I'm not a technology guy. I can just fake technology if I have to, and I can talk it and throw some buzzwords in. But but the, the really cool thing is, is you can take your monthly payments from the fund directly to your bank as an ACH payment, or you could take your payments in a USD stable coin, or you could take it in Ethereum or you could take it on any of the, the blockchains that we happen to, to issue onto. So in our case, it would be Algorand, but you could also, if we issued on the Avalanche, you could take your stablecoin. But then you're actually outside the banking system and you have your money in you know, a crypto wallet and you're off to the races because you actually control your assets. And another really cool thing is, we did an affiliate agreement with a company called BlockFi, who I know, you know, at APIA knows. And so they can take their monthly payments in a USD stablecoin, deposit it in BlockFi, and then get an extra 6 to 7% on their money instead of getting the ACH payment into their Chase bank account, which they have to pay a monthly maintenance fee of you know, $20 to $50 to even maintain the account. So it, it's a whole new world out there. I, I think you know, it's going to be an easier thing at some point for issuers to, you know, keep track of their investors and service their investors and give a better investor experience. And it's going to be a much better experience for investors. Right. So I was going to, I was going to say like, from the, from the perspective of an investor, like the benefits for those who have some wallets who are looking at, you know, um, you dollar cost averaging Bitcoin or dollar cost averaging Ethereum, which are the, the two big ones that, you know, generally speaking, if you want to get into them, you'd say like you want a dollar cost average into those. What I've noticed in the space is that it really is about that control that you said and the ability in a way also to diversify out of fiat currency. If you're trading, if you're holding wallets, if you want to, you know, stake and get your interest that it just, and it gives you options. Like you mentioned Algorand and Avalanche, which are blockchain that most people don't know about. I barely know about them. So it just feels like a more expansive opportunity for, for one who wants to control their money and be able to do more with it as opposed to just, well, I'll just get it in my bank account and then I'll, you know, and then I'll ACH it to my exchange or, or what have you. So I could see that being a benefit and it's, because it's not technology, because you're not tokenizing an asset, it's it's a straight up real estate play with some additional, you know, with some additional benefits that don't come with a traditional real estate play. What other benefits are you are you seeing, especially as we move more and more into the digital currency space? Yeah. So I I also would like to point out because a lot of people say, well. What is blockchain? So I like to explain to people that blockchain, you can transfer value and you can transfer assets any in the, anywhere in the world instantaneously. Mm -hmm. So you control your own assets. So when you were talking about a wallet, a lot of people get freaked out. What's a wallet? Blah, 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 blah. Basically, you know, you, instead of a bank holding your money, you have your money 
in your basically your own safe deposit box. So you control your assets, they're in your safe deposit box, you have access to that. And so one of the benefits is, is for example, uh, if I decided to relocate and you know, just semi-retire down in Costa Rica or Panama or you know, Dubai or you know, just travel the world for eight months, if I had a bank account here, I'd have to, you know, pay all kinds of transaction fees. I'd have to, you know, try to get my bank. And if my, if it was on a, a Sunday or a Monday, or it happened to be a holiday in the country that I was in, and or it happened to be, you know, the President's Day over here, or who knows, they've got like 50 holidays, federal holidays now. So this is open 24 hours, seven days a week. There are no holidays. You have access to your money. You can trade your you know, assets 24 hours a day. You can get your money 24 hours a day. There are no bank holidays. So that's one of the, the real big benefits of it is you're not dependent on you know, some central bank or something you know, like somebody out of New York deciding that they're not going to send it. Because I can give you an example. We were sending a wire abroad and it had to be there on a certain date. And they kept asking me about, you know, you need to send proof that it was sent because they wouldn't know that the wire was there for seven days. And then sure enough, for the wire got lost in between the two banks. So they never got the money. So then they're calling me up like I'm a deadbeat. <laughs> they're like, where's the wire money at? And, you know, the bank, you know, straighten it out and stuff. But if I was sending USD or if I was sending a, a Euro stable coin, or, you know, if I was just sending, we agreed on, I'm going to send, you know, to Ethereum, you know, somewhere around six to $7,000. I, I send it to you you know that it's there within, you know, at the most five minutes. And on Algorand and Avalanche, you know that it's there within seconds. With Bitcoin, the transfer takes, you know, probably around 10 minutes to 20 minutes. But still, it's like, that's blazingly fast. And you know instantly whether you got the money or whether the money was received. Yeah, you're right. The The whole wallet is is really important because it, it's you are your own bank. Right. That's, I think that was my biggest takeaway when I first started learning about it. I was like, okay, it's an app, but it's not an app. It's my, I, I'm the bank. And so I have to be like really careful and, and really responsible with it. And, you know, they're the whole DeFi ecosystem that that's being built up around this. It's really fascinating to see it, to see it all play out. And I think that this intersection of like the real estate, the payments being really the variable for how people want to receive those payments and what they want to, what they want to do with them. I think as we kind of get more and more used to operating with our own, you know, personal banks, if, if you will, I think that'll start to creep into just the, the normal way that, that we do operate. I think right now it's still two very separate things. I know for me, it is like, I have my, my life stuff and the, you know what I mean and then and right. that's like my normal life and then I have this like alternate life almost with my wallets because it, it takes a minute it really takes it took me months to really clue into how this functions because currently it's not very user-friendly right. right right and you know and there's some regulations coming in which of course are really required because that's a really important part for investor protections and there's going to be a lot more a lot more of that and i really appreciate that you've created something that goes through the regulations of being a security and so you know you're not just 
throwing some real estate in a fund and into a token and putting it up on like, I don't know, like KuCoin or something and saying, well, hey, we, we were originally, I, I thought I could do an ICO. So I'm like, I'm going to do uh, this. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, this is like a security. And, right. since these are, and since we're raising money in the U.S. and since these are located in the U.S., I might want to comply with securities laws. Right. But the other really cool thing about security tokens is a, a lot of people have heard that, you know, people lost their Bitcoin or they yeah. lost their wallet or they lost their with security tokens. If your tokens are stolen or if you don't have access to your tokens or for some reason, since you're already KYC, which is know your customer. And since your identity is already there, if you can prove that you lost them, those security tokens, those shares that you have would be burned and then they just reissue. So if somebody stole your security tokens, wow. they could shut those off and then just reissue new shares to you. So that's, you know, part of the regulations is, is that when you're investing in our fund or you're investing in on Mosin's platform or something like that, they need to, you know, do know your customer and they need to do anti-money laundering because yeah. that's part of the Patriot Act. So you need to show that it's really you, your identity. They also, you know, the main thing the government wants is your taxpayer ID because they yeah, want to make course. sure you're paying taxes. Yeah. And then with ours, since it's a 506C, the investor has to go through an accreditation process to just prove that they're an accredited investor. They do not necessarily have to do that part if they're a non-U.S. investor, but U.S. investors need to be accredited investors. Right. So I guess I think really important for investors is, you know, don't buy the house in Missouri that some kind of random person is throwing around the terms Right. I get like I get I get a lot of messages now in some of my socials. There's all these people trying to like get me into NFTs or throwing around jargon, mine this and DeFi that. And I don't know who like, you know, I have no idea. They're not even real. So for an investor, right, as always, right, we, we're looking at the risks, we're looking at downside protection. So we're looking at how to protect ourselves. What are some of the things that investors should be looking at if they're interested in the 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 token security tokens and and looking at the issuers what are what are the things that investors should be asking and receiving let's say from you or other people that they might run into that are throwing around the word security token and tokenization first they they need to do all their normal due diligence so they want to make sure that the sponsor has a track record or the sponsor has some sort of related you know, business experience that, you know, whatever they're doing, you're fairly competent that they can accomplish their business plan. The next thing you want to make sure is that they're doing a legal issuance. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know, you can buy these tokens and, you know, we, we're doing it on the cheap and you get a percentage and I get a percent. I, I would just be concerned about that, you know, because it's probably not a legal securities offering. So you want to make sure that there's the normal PPM with all the normal legal language and all the normal, you know, that because it also protects you because, you know, even though they're issued under exemptions like the 506, but you still can't overtly commit fraud or other things like that. So there's there's big no-nos that, you know, sponsors that are doing it legally should not be doing. The next thing, and this is important, you need to ask about where these, who is going to be the transfer agent. 
because if these are going to be traded, you need a registered transfer agent and that transfer agent needs to be licensed by the SEC. So there's a bunch of platforms out there and there's a bunch of token companies out there that say, I can you know, tokenize your fund. Well, you can get a tokenized fund or you could get a tokenized offering, but unless it's connected to a licensed transfer agent, those shares will not be able to trade. So it'll just be exactly like you have if you do a normal private syndication. So that's number one. Number two, you wanna ask, do they have plans to list on an ATS? Do they have plans to list you know, a secondary exchange? and some of those other things, because that's gonna give you a good idea as to you know, where you're about. If you're investing in this because you have a hope of liquidity, you wanna know some of those things. If you're investing in it because you want the extra benefits and options, you, know, you could go through it and it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to ever trade it at all. But you, know, you just wanna make sure that everything is being done legally. And that you, the whole benefit is, is that you have this hope of liquidity. So in by hope of liquidity, I explain to people, you could do it peer to peer. So me and you, if you wanted to sell me $50,000 of your fund and I agreed to buy your fund, as long as we agreed on the price of 50,000 and I put the 50,000 up and you put the shares up, the trade goes through automatically without a broker. You can also list these shares with a broker. You can also list these shares on what's called an ATS, which is an automatic trading system. So it gives you some more liquidity. Then the other really cool thing is, is that we've been talking to companies like BlockFi, Aave, and there's another uh, group out there called Reno, uh, a friend of mine, Victor Viktorov, and he's putting together liquidity protocols. So it gets into this buzzword. But so you could potentially put your shares up with him and then they would lend against the shares. So for example, if they were comfortable with the net asset value of the fund and the reports of the fund and that there was real you know, numbers you know, in the fund and they were, they were correct, they would lend against it. And we're also working with BlockFi as our partner on that if BlockFi gets comfortable, since they're technically not a bank, but they do a lot of bank-like things, you know, they're taking a look at this as a, an extension of their business as well. Yeah. Amazing. So, yeah. yeah. So it gives the, the investor, ordinarily you couldn't, you know, borrow against a paper share and a syndication, but this you can, you know, borrow like margin, you know, on stocks. Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting to see how that all evolves with, with the DeFi lending and, and what you just said. So there's so much, such a fascinating space to, to be in and it's moving really quickly. And so I just wanted to say thank you for, for coming on and, and talking about all of this. It's been really, really informative learning about Triple Net and then Liberty Fund and, and just like all of this, like it's really, it's really the cusp. So, so thank you for, for sharing all of that. And you, know, we didn't, you know, I keep calling it Liberty Fund. Where do people find Liberty Fund? Okay. It's Liberty Real Estate Fund and they can find it at libertyfund.io. So they can just go to libertyfund.io. We have educational materials, a lot of educational materials on triple net leases. And we also have educational materials on real estate tokenization. We also have another website called the blockchainrealestatesummit.com that not only has the information from the Blockchain Real Estate Summit, 
but we've also have blockchainmeetup.com. And so it has our past meetups on that website. And it has a lot of information if you're interested in learning more about you know, blockchain real estate and how it's going to change real estate. And we're also gonna to continue to have additional blockchain real estate meetup, which we're gonna bring people on that are doing things in the space. We've had Mosin on and we've had a number of really excellent people on in the past. But we're also going to do the Blockchain Real Estate Summit again in Austin, Texas in September of next year. We're working with a group that we're going to also do a blockchain event down in uh, Panama for South America. And uh, we're also working with another group that we, we might actually be doing something in the near term in Europe and in Brazil. So wow. just it, it's a worldwide industry. It's really cool. That's the other thing I really like about crypto is, is that, you know, it's just amazing. I, I work with people all over the world now. And so, you know, there's a guy, like I said, just, you know, contacted me on WhatsApp right before we got on said, you know, let's talk about this thing I want to put together in Brazil. And then I want to, you know, see what we can do to help you out with your conference that you're planning in, you know, right. South America and Panama in 2023. Wow. Sounds like you're going to be traveling even more than I already see you traveling every time I check LinkedIn, you're in some other, you're in some other country. So it sounds like that's not going to stop anytime soon. So, you know, again, thank you. Thank you so much for stopping in and just dropping so much really, really informative knowledge on us. I'm really excited to dig into everything. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Both yeah. you and Daniel. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.